What's up, hardcore humans? This is Dr. Mike with another episode of the Hardcore Humanism Podcast. Very special show today. We are talking with Al Jorgensen of Ministry. Al is one of the pioneers in industrial music, and Ministry is generally considered one of the greatest industrial bands of all time. Now, on the Hardcore Humanism Podcast, we are trying to help you find your purpose in life and work hard to achieve it. And a purpose-driven life can be valuable through the different seasons of our lives, whether surviving difficult times such as trauma or mental illness, or thriving by exploring our passions and creativity. And the path to finding our purpose often involves considering alternative ideas and pursuing unconventional directions. And Al Jorgensen certainly is an unconventional thinker and artist. Now, right now, we live in a world where industrial sounds are very commonplace in music. But when Al came on the scene, this was not the norm. Very few bands utilized this approach. And so stylistically, it was very striking and gripping. But the style was just an outgrowth of Al's understanding of the world and human nature. And he sees industrial music, which often uses harsh machine-like sounds, not as fundamentally devoid of emotion, but actually as a vehicle for opening our minds to what human beings can be and what we can accomplish. And it's not comfortable. It's challenging and at times disturbing to continually evaluate and reconceptualize who we are as human beings. So let's listen to what Al has to say. We are thrilled to have Al Jorgensen of Ministry, the creator of industrial metal, the father, the godfather of industrial metal. Al, thanks so much for being here. Thank you, Mike, for having me. And I consider myself pretty much of a sight case, so what a perfect publication to want to talk to me. <laughs> exactly. I don't agree that you're a sight case, but I don't like that term, but we're going to talk about that actually in a moment. Let's get right to it, okay? We're going to talk about industrial metal as a concept. We're going to talk about it from a theoretical perspective, from a practical perspective, and we're going to talk about it in terms of how we understand human nature. And so maybe that's where we can start with you is do you have more generalized views on people and human nature? Well, I think in the initial query that you sent our publicist is that you were basically asking how I felt about like the dehumanization of industrial and technology in music and how that applies towards your thinking, your writing, your attitudes towards it and all that. I think the question in reverse is a far better question, is how we contain or pertain to industrialization and technologization of music as opposed to how what that's done to us is what we have done to it. I just really feel that a lot is being made about you know this topic, just, just even the fact that I'm called an industrial icon or whatever. I mean, basically, since, you know, the 19th century, we've been living in an industrial age. All of a sudden, there's been all these new noises that had never been heard before on this planet. Cotton gin, steam presses, printing presses, all these, this large machinery that, that makes these audible sounds that have never been heard, and how people interpreted it. And, and now it's become Literally, we're familiar with these sounds. It took a long time, I mean, to get used to these, and nobody thought of them as music. If anything, they were a nuisance. 
and all this, but now you, you can go on online anywhere and get plugins or apps of pretty much every sound that's ever been made. I mean, everything from dentist drills to, you know, uh, F-18s to, you know, just the sounds and the mechanization of making those, everything is documented. How do we use that? This is what always fascinated me. It's like, we live in this, in this ever-evolving world of sound that we've created, and to incorporate that into music is basically just, to me, is just a Polaroid type, old-school Polaroid snapshot of your surroundings, and you're singing about it and trying to make sense of it, not only to yourself, but maybe to, to others. And um, you obviously have to incorporate these sounds because these sounds are, are part of our day-to-day life. So I consider myself a minstrel, just like any other musician would in telling a story and, and using traditional instruments. But we have all these other instruments that people didn't realize at the time were instruments that were actually like enhancing the sound. In other words, we had control of the industrial mechanism as opposed to the other way around. Nowadays, I think you see a a shifting transition of, I just read like, you know, we're obsolete. Musicians are obsolete. Minstrels, storytellers, songwriters are obsolete because through algorithms and artificial intelligence, they can just decide what's for you and i'm sure there'll be a market for that in the future and i'm sure it'll be quite prosperous but i'm telling you right now and and in my in my talks with william burroughs as well we control the technology and the day that we don't is the scary part now in an in industrial application and military applications I, i worry about the technology overtaking the actual human element which some people think would be a good thing because, uh, you know, we, we don't go by, uh, computers don't go by emotions and they're not going to declare war on someone unless if there's a, an algorithm for it. That's actually scarier. I think emotion is, is a big part of industrial music as opposed to a small part. Like, for instance, blues is pure emotion. I mean, you learn three chords, whether you're adept at it or not at those three chords and the offshoots of them, with the correct emotion, you can still do a really moving blues song. Jazz starts getting more into the human mind of like what's possible with the riffing that's possible that interconnects with each other. Jazz to me is almost like human's adaptation of an algorithm. But I do think like, for instance, to me, ZZ Top is an industrial band. They started realizing that incorporating sounds that you hear every day into standard blues riffs that humanity can understand and process is a natural thing. It's not an unnatural thing. And to me, they're the godfathers of industrial rock. (laughs) Certainly not me. And there's many, many, many bands and individuals that have like flown with this concept of, of seeing how far they can go with technology, but really... You can only go so far. The human element still has to be present. In other words, just just from a songwriting angle, if you're composing a song, unless you want to let let it go, which to me, a lot of jazz just lets it go. And people interpret individual things that are insular in their head that have nothing to do with sometimes even the song, and they just put it in. I think I think that's brilliant. But from my perspective, 
I'm just t- I'm just utilizing new instruments, the sounds of our era, of our epoch, and incorporating them into more traditional things that humans understand and feel comfortable with. Yeah, it's interesting that you bring up William Burroughs because I came to his work a lot later and I I don't remember, I think it was Naked Lunch, but I think I was reading it and I remember the chaos that I felt. Like all of a sudden I was reading and in the middle of it, I felt as though I was like running from something. I didn't even know what exactly. And it's interesting that you're describing using and ref- using the technology and reflecting what's around you. And I'm kind of curious from your perspective, I felt like he was a master of doing that in the sense that he seemed to capture the chaotic emotions of the time in, in a, obviously in a very unique way. I'm kind of curious your perspective on his work and oh. his influence on you. Yeah, here's the funny thing. In my conversations with Bill, no, Bill was not trying to go for anything. Uh, Bill, similar to me, the, the way that, that I write songs for pretty much my entire career. Okay, I have this car that when I, when I shut the engine off, the antenna comes down the receptor antenna of the thing comes down, goes away when the car is off. When my car is off and I go to sleep, my antenna goes up for whatever reason. And by the morning, I I have entire cosmic opuses, songs, complete songs delivered to me or interpreted by my antenna that I spend, you know, my next waking hours for months trying to get it exactly as beautiful as I heard when I was in a supine state. I mean, it's interesting. In other words, when I'm asleep, I'm cosmically connected as opposed to earthbound, as I think all people do when they dream. But I've been able to focus what I get and then spend my time on earth, my waking hours, trying to recreate that cosmic connection as opposed to an earthly connection. Yet, I use all the earthly sounds available in my music to try and attempt to recreate the cosmic sounds that I get on my antenna at night. It's kind of a strange thing, but when, as talking with Burroughs, he did the same thing. Um, and he found that his contribution to literature was he would get these, these great profound messages when he was sleeping or nodding off, or whatever, if you will, and in some euphoric state, and then try and recreate them, and he could never recreate them. So what he did was he would literally just cut them up and throw them on the floor, cut them up in pieces, sentences, throw them on the floor, and piece them back together. Then they started to make sense for him. And I've done a lot of my stuff the same way, where literally... I'll have an idea, but the idea is so earthbound, it doesn't connect cosmically. So I'll cut it up, throw it on the floor, put it back together. Then it makes more sense, not only to me, but I think it becomes a truer adherence of what I'm hearing in my supine state to be able to recreate that. Because to try and recreate these beautiful opuses I get while I'm while I'm sleeping or in dream state, it's literally impossible. I'm, I might have come close maybe once or twice in 30 years. But like, you have to remember that the cosmic importance of things is different than the earth importance of things. We are very uh, insular 
and what we think is important. We're so wrapped up. I mean, everything from from politics to all these things, it's all so self-absorbed. It's like one giant TMZ entertainment tonight thing. We talk about ourselves. We write about ourselves. We do everything about ourselves because we don't know anything else. And I certainly am not saying I'm above that. I'm just saying that I also try to filter in other things that are important to other aspects of the cosmos, other societies, other civilizations, of which I'm 1,000% convinced exist and that we interact with every day if we allow ourselves to. See, one of the things that I'm picking up from what you're describing is the dynamic nature of the interaction with the world around you. You know, people are always like, well, technology's good, technology's bad. And that's the way sometimes people say like, well, optimism is good and pessimism is bad. And for me, it's just what gets you moving feels much more important than some kind of static right or wrong. And that's what I'm hearing from you is that there's a constant interaction with yourself, constant interaction with the world around you, sometimes mediated through the technology. Well, not only the technology, but through a cosmic and universal fundamental. I think other societies and other galaxies, other planets, we've received their radio waves like they've received ours. All I'm doing is receiving their radio waves and then putting an Earth-type stamp on it with the noises from Earth, problems and concerns from Earth in the lyrics and agenda, but then sending it right back out into the cosmos for other people to interpret in other places and other galaxies. I'm not confined to a billboard top 40 and what goes on on earth. I think I probably have more fans on like say planet Xenon in in the galaxy of Orion than I do here. Maybe because they're fascinated on what goes on on this planet and how they interpret universal truths. There are some universal frequencies. I mean, as we go through technology, and I think the the military already knows this, frequencies and the bandwidth within those is much more advanced than what we even know, than, than what we're even beginning to know. I think we stopped at like Marconi and radio waves. I mean, you know, if if you think about it, basically, it's like uh, the transmission of this. No, it's much bigger than that. And I'm huge fans of what's sent to me in my dream states. <laughs> and so they have fans here. And then I take it, I rearrange it. Uh, I mean, basically, what I do is not, it's not industrial rock. I'm just using industrial noises of this industrial age on this planet, incorporate it into my music, and send back some universal truths with some a little bit of an earth stamp. So it becomes a collage and we start building onto this like um, universal constant of frequencies and, and sounds that happen. You know what? I do this myself and I, I shouldn't. I, I do too much with the labels, the genres. Like even now, as I'm saying, I labeled it industrial metal or industrial rock. I'm like, that kind of sucks because the whole point of this is, is to not have limits or boundaries. And even I'm, I'm even trying to like, you know, encourage people think outside the box, you know, do unconventional things. And here I am like slapping a label on you within the first 15 seconds of us talking. That's what I'm saying about like this, the society that we've built on this planet is just absorbed with themselves. And so because they, they have no 
other concept behind the shell that we've created. So we're inside our own bubble. So we have to categorize everything from skin color to type of music. You know, like we're, we're having all this racial upheaval right now. I've always just thought of like, you know, oh yeah, yeah. Okay. So everyone, I don't see color in all this is, you know, the, the great white response to all this stuff, you know, once you've been in privilege. But the thing is, is like, they used to say that about people with tattoos. It's like, if you saw a person in the 1920s, 30s, 40s with tattoos, you would immediately classify them as being this kind of person or another kind of person. And then, you know, through Jim Crow era and all that, a person with different features, whether it be oriental eyes or black skin or brown skin or whatever, you are classified as that and you have a rigid sense of documentation of what that person should be because we are so self-absorbed in this earth bubble that we don't understand that it's just, we are all from the planet earth. We are all exactly similar. There might be some differences in DNA with what's susceptible to some germs or this or that, slight differences, but we are all from the same planet. I, I can't wait, and I hope I'm around for the day that uh, we can just go, oh, oh, no, that, that guy's cool. He's from Earth, you know? Not, oh, no, that guy's cool. He's white, or that guy's cool. He's Mexican or, or black, depending on your perspective. No, 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 no. We're from Earth. Those people we don't know a lot about, you know, and, and I think there's been writings about this before, including Reagan at the UN speech of just like, wouldn't we all band together if we knew that there was another force that we could basically hate on, you know, like, hey, let's make them the enemy. We always seem to have to want to have an enemy on this planet. And to get to the point where like, whether you have, now if you have tattoos, everyone just goes, oh, whatever, that's just somebody's kid or this and that. But 40, 50 years ago, 60 years ago, it was like, oh, that guy's trouble or, you know what I'm saying? And I think we're at that fulcrum now to wear like skin color and all this. We're all earthlings with different makeup is basically what it is. Yeah. And it feels like the the thing that sometimes we're most afraid of, you know, if you think about the way that people reacted to boroughs. You think about, you know, nihilism in general or industrial, you know, some of these different things. It feels like we're afraid of deconstructing things. You know, like, like what you're talking about is an ongoing evolution, an ongoing dynamic. And it feels like we like to grab onto our comforts whenever we can. And the thing, I, to me, the same things, it's, it seems like the thing we're afraid of is, well, what if the thing that we believe turns out not to be true? Oh my God, then tomorrow it's not true. It's like we're, you know, I think we're, I think, I don't know. I think I'm afraid of that a lot of the times. Right. I think a lot no, of people no. are afraid of that. Absolutely right. But I think what what's funny is people don't, they've been conditioned to understand, to protect what comforts they have. And what they don't understand is that there's better comforts if you expand. This is not the end of comfort. You don't have to hoard it because it can be better. You know what I'm saying? And it's very similar with music and, and all of society. It, it permeates every aspect of human societal thought and kind of herd mentality, of which creates tribalism and borders and all this stuff. Like I said, we're from the planet Earth. People make music. I find similarities in my music to indigenous songs of a village from a Maasai tribe, say. I mean, this exact same stuff. 
And what am I going to, you know, I, I guess on earth, your first reaction would be like, well, let's sue that tribe because they stole my stuff. Even though that stuff's been there for, you know, millennia, through generations. These are things that they interpreted from the cosmos. And they stole my stuff. I stole their stuff. People steal my stuff. I don't sue them. I steal other people's stuff. And it's not other people's stuff. I also steal the universe's stuff. And I throw it into a collage and put my own imprint from my own perspective on it, which I think the only true way, if you really wanted to categorize what ministry does, is we're not industrial rock. We're not metal. We're not dance music. We're collage rock. I take pieces of everything and put it together to show us a snapshot of ourselves and of our society. So when you were talking about that concept of universal fundamentals, and I, I don't know if that's, if that's a term that you created or if that's a, that's a term of, of art that people use, but would you say that one of the universal fundamentals is that you can always find comfort, more comfort, I should say, by looking out than looking within? Well, I, yeah, I think in, in the long run, yes. It, it just depends on, on your, like, safetometer. Um, like, how safe do you want to be? Uh, are you that content with the status quo that you need to cling to it? And I, now you've just shut yourself off. And what I found is that this society, with the governmental kind of leadership that we've had across the world, has made it seem like, and starting with religion, just be happy with what you got. Suffer now because there's better stuff coming in the future, in the afterlife. That's been the whole shtick of religion. And in a sense, they're true. But they're the reason that we don't expand. They hold us to this like we are like literally subservient slaves to an agenda that's been set up. And just be happy with you got that. Don't complain too much. And the afterlife is the better place. Well, we can experience afterlife while we're alive here. If you get out of the boundaries of what's currently available through societal norms. So, you know, now to a degree, and now I'm going to use this term, even though this is exactly the opposite of what we've saying is the goal is that, you know, ministry is established for better or worse. There's people have a concept of it. There's, there's a construct. People have certain expectations. And so therefore, to some degree, one might argue there's a certain safety in it, although I don't think that you would necessarily take it that way. I'm kind of curious when you started out before you were ministry with a capital M or Al Jorgensen with the capital A and a capital J, and you started getting into this kind of music and maybe, you know, other people were not, what made it so that you kept going with that instead of saying, well, no, I, I can't do this. I have to, I have to just play the piano or I have to but, just play yeah. the guitar. Yeah. Know? I mean, there, there was a definite fulcrum. There was a pivot point in my life. And, and that record was called the land of rape and honey. And that was basically <laughs> my whole concept of life sprang out of complete an abject frustration and humiliation to the point where I was trying to learn literally tape editing and editing my stuff. And so in other words, like you'd sit down in the studio and you record something in the same key and the same BPM, but completely different vibe or atmosphere. 
And then you'd record something that was more of the main song that you were thinking in the same key and the same BPM and record a bunch of reels of tape of that. And then you'd record some stuff that was not having to do with the BPM or anything like that and just record, record, record. And then at the end of the day, splice it together. And I was trying to, uh, I was trying to do this consciously through the works of, uh, of Burroughs and Gison, Burroughs and Gison, and they were doing this cut-up method. And I was trying to do the cut-up method as well. I thought, this is really interesting. Let's see how it works. Well, I found that it, it didn't work if I had an agenda. When I literally took pieces as it's spooling through the reel of my two-track machine, I would make marks on the machine showing when one beat started and one beat ended. And I would take those and I would cut those little slices and I would throw them on the floor. And then I'd put them back together. And like I said, it made more sense than anything I tried to do, which meant almost like, it's almost like, I mean, I, I think they teach this in 12 step and all that. Let go of yourself. <laughs> you know, you're not that important. There's other universal forces that are much, much stronger than you quit trying to shape it into this direction or that. So I did my part. I recorded the pieces with a lot of options. I threw it on the floor, then pieced it back together because the pieces were all on the same size. So I knew they would fit. It's like reconstruction, deconstruction, and then reconstruction of a jigsaw puzzle. And I had a far better result than trying to do it myself and push against basically universal fundamentals. Yeah, when you say that the universal fundamentals, like just so I know, what what are you referring to? Or can they even be be quantified? Well, I'm not the person to quantify them. I just know that, okay, for instance, I was living in Colorado when I was 15 with my parents. It was the last year of living with them. And they got some kind of mortgage rate reduction on this subdivision house in the middle of this forest, you know, that some developers decided to do. And my dad got a mortgage reduction by running the actual septic system, the sewage plant to this subdivision. And my dad got the mortgage reduction, but he just said, before school every day, you go out there and you check all the tanks and valves. and So you do that. And I used to go out there and hear this, this hum of the factory which was almost hypnotic, it would send me into like almost like a, a tantric state, but I'd check all the vowels and all that stuff, but I started realizing, and then I started reading later, much later, about universal hums, like the actual frequencies of planet spinning, of stars spinning, of all this other stuff, and I realized that by doing that like sewage treatment plant every day, I was hearing this this hum, this frequency that I can't describe, I can't quantify, but I swear to God, by checking sewage tanks, I was able to feel more connected with the universe by frequency. Like I was convinced, and then reading about it later, like to, to include like planetary um, frequencies, all these frequencies are basically what the aliens have above us. This is what's been suppressed on this planet is not only light frequencies, but sound frequencies and how they determine everything from health to technology to everything. 
we've pretty much kept it at a minimum. I'm still fascinated by it. I'm still a rookie and I'm still learning. So I'm in no way able to quantify the universal fundamental, but I'm certain that it exists because I felt greater than one by hearing certain frequencies every morning before I went to school like this. It was at like about 170 Hertz. It was, it was slightly below 200 and above Either way, it was this hum. It was, it was the same thing that, that Buddhist monks do. They get into this tantric chant of a certain frequency. The key is almost, well, the key goes hand in glove with the frequency that you use. I've done math studies on frequency versus key. And I've actually built a chart that Adrian Sherwood, who I worked with on the Twitch record, we sat down and, and for literally two weeks, on Warner Brothers money, they were expecting us to crank out pop hits. And we sat down instead with calculators. This is before the internet and stuff. I'm talking about 1985. Yeah, about 85, 86. And we spent the first two weeks just calculating delay times to uh, BPMs and uh, frequencies to key and, and started doing this on this jigsaw puzzle. And that way that we could deconstruct our music and reconstruct it in any which way we chose that fits the moment or the times. The only variable is obviously the telling of the story through vocals. And I always find that the most difficult thing to do in what I do, creating the music or, or a certain universal frequency or this and that is, is the easy part. It's, it's trying to adapt that to discussing current events or human emotion and how to apply that. It's almost like um, being an ambassador from earth. Okay. We get your universal fundamental and here's our take on it. Is this any good? And then you wait for feedback, but it's not like uh, an interview with you and having critics unless uh, I start getting like reviews in my sleep. You know, <laughs> We'll see. Now, when you, so when we're talking about universal fundamentals, we're talking about frequencies then in whatever shape or form, like yeah. vibes. Yeah, I, and I think they're much more important than, than governments and society lets on. I think there's reasons that certain songs become hits because, uh, you know, even like One Hit Wonders is a great case study. Why did this song, they never did anything else like it. So why was that one so good? Somebody should do a real study on it. I've noticed that there's certain fundamental things that appeal to human societies at that period of time that are a fundamental truth to what was necessary for that time. It gets really deep in music. So this is the thing. They're talking about like doing music through computers. Musicians are obsolete. Computers can do everything. AI can do everything but they really don't have an algorithm for the human emotion. They can do human brain calculation power, but there is no algorithm for human emotion. And there isn't, that is not a universal fundamental that is indigenous to this planet. And that's what we need to like really focus on what makes us different. Say it loud, say it proud. We're human. This is the way we are. Yeah, it's fucked up. We know it. But this is what we're doing in line with also 
a universal fundamental truth of frequencies and other things. Yeah. And I don't know if this was a study or if this is just something I made up in my head, but I think that there was a study at one point where they asked people, why do you love your spouse? And there were two categories of answers. One was, well, I like them because I think they're attractive. I think they're smart. I think they're nice, whatever. And the other ones just said, well, I don't really know. I just do, you know? And the ones that said, I don't know, I just do. I think the, the marriages went better. The relationships went better. Right. You know, because, because they're tapping yeah. into that, what I think you're describing is that frequency or that universal fundamental. Like I, I can name a bunch of things about my wife that I think are, are really good qualities. I don't really know that any of them are particularly why I love her. Like it just, I don't know. Well, I just well, do. Look at natural selection within our wildlife. They strictly go by pheromones. I mean, they don't date and dine their dates. They just go up, they smell it. They're like, yeah, that smells like right. They smell them. They go, yeah, that smells right. Then they fuck. You know, I mean, it's like. Um, you see, I, it's, I think you're onto something because my wife smells really good. I think that that's what it is. It's pheromone, but that's a universal fundamental. That's what I'm saying. But, it's but I'm like that. Yeah. Like, but I'm thinking now as you're talking that it's the, the frequency is that dynamic, that deconstruction dynamic that you're talking about, you know, because again, it's sort of like, why do I like one artist versus another? You know, it's, it's, I can't really tell you, but I do feel like I can pick up on when someone's thinking and someone's like, hey, how can I do that a little bit differently? How can I do that a little bit more? How can I do that a little bit less? What's the difference versus someone who's saying like, I want to do X, which by the way, there's, there's nothing wrong with. I think that's fantastic for some people. Yeah. It's yeah, just yeah. not, not for me as much. Yeah. Yeah, no, no, I agree. And I, I find that the less thinking I do, the better the songs that I create are. I really do. I just find like whatever came to me in my sleep and I try and recreate it to the best of my extent. When I try and overthink it, I, I think the song suffers. There's very few times. However, I will say this, that to imprint the earth stamp on, say, a universal frequency... I will throw in uh, what I hope to be like clever little tidbits, whether it be samples or something that lets you know, yes, this is from Earth. Yes, this is this time period. Yes, this is what I'm frustrated with. All these things. In other words, like people criticize me or ridicule me for being so politically oriented in my lyrical content and all that. But it's, it's really emotional it's not political, trying to have an agenda of like, oh boy, Trump is bad. I'm going to sing about how Trump is bad. No, it's not that. It's about the emotional uh, on a much bigger picture of like how this was predictable, how this is correctable. And these are the things that we need to do as earthlings to be able to do this, to be able to join a cosmic community, which right now looks at us, trust me, with a vast amount of suspicion and well-deserved because we are so self-absorbed. All we see is breaking news, breaking news, uh, you know, just some completely mundane thing that gets people into a tizzy. Trump wore a mask today. Oh my God, this is going to dominate the news cycle now. Who gives a fuck? I mean, the guy's obviously, he's corrupt. He's everything that we basically as human beings and the construct of society 
has tried to avoid and somehow he's gotten in power. And I think we've let that happen because of our own fear, our own fear of like, well, maybe this guy can keep what I've got, even though what I've got is so fundamentally like inadequate compared to what the universe can provide. But at least this guy can keep that. We've been bludgeoned into this, like we're satisfied with what we got and we have to keep this. You know, and Trump is the perfect person for that. Just stoking fears of of what could be possible and just keep what you got while he keeps accumulating more through nefarious means or whatever. But this is the way the society has gotten. And I see a real fulcrum going not only in politics and all this other stuff, but, but in music as well. Uh, at least on the new record that I'm working on, yeah, there's some fucking pop songs on there. But... I'm really happy with them so far. They're, uh, I'm not overthinking them. This is what came to me. This is the imprint I put on. And they seem to fit with, with everything and bridging a better future. And, you know, not overthinking it, but just like going, yeah, this feels natural. I like the pheromone of it. Yeah, but, you know, as you're talking, you're talking about like, okay, what are people looking down on earth saying? And I think. Maybe our frequency is that sort of chaotic deconstruction. I'm, I'm thinking a lot about Interview with the Vampire and that Louis quote, you know, like I'm, you know, I'm at odds with everything and that, uh, that whole thing that then whoever Antonio Banderas played, I'm remembering from the movie, not the book, but, you know, where he's saying that that is the defining character of your age. I mean, maybe the thing that makes us Earth is that we're constantly at odds. We're constantly deconstructing things. We're never, we're always restless. I don't know. Maybe that's our frequency. Well, that's not one frequency. That's the point. We can't decide on one. And, and I can see where the rebelliousness of just following one frequency, that would be almost like the matrix or something. And we don't need that. And, and that's what makes earthlings special is the sense that they, they innately and inherently question everything. Yet when push comes to shove with societal pressures, they are quite happy with what they got and they want to go no further at a certain point. And that's what we need to deconstruct is societal paradigm, societal norms that keep us in this worker bee mentality when, yeah, okay, a universal fundamental frequency and we can rule the universe over this frequency. Yeah, that's also the same kind of concept as making sure that we're all worker bees, slave to the overlords. We work our ass off, take all the risk. They do all the profit. They have underground bunkers in case if something goes wrong. I get it. And it's the same thing in the universe. It's not like there's this complete utopia out there without minefields. I'm just saying that it's still a better frequency than the one that we're being fed right now. Yeah. And it's interesting that you talk about that, you know, because you mentioned something at the beginning. I don't know, you made some kind of mental health comment. And it's very interesting to me how it seems that at least I'll say this for myself. I have trouble confiding in or talking with people who have not experienced the, the severe deconstruction of whether it's loss or mental illness or addiction, or I mean, even things like being feeling stigmatized. 
And it's interesting because getting back to this whole idea of deconstruction as, as a dynamic, as, as one universal fundamental frequency, let's say, and how important that is to me that people, because that's where I feel like a lot of the empathy comes from, yes. you know, is that you, and, and maybe part of the reason why people don't get it otherwise is because if you're not forced into it, unfortunately, by some, some terrible event, I don't know. Maybe it's harder to develop empathy. I feel like a lot of people, I, I have trouble developing empathy for things that I haven't been through, no matter how much I try. And that's my job, you know, is to be empathic. It's my job to shut down that shutdown of empathy. I think I, I, you just hit on something that's really near and dear to my heart is empathy. I think we are all born with a limitless or, or unlimited amount of empathy, and it's systematically driven away from us. I think that's what makes humans so interesting to the rest of the galaxy, cosmos, whatever, is the amount of empathy that we were born. And then the amount of time spent within societal structures deconstructing that empathy gene. Yeah, and it's, it's interesting because I, that's one of the reasons why humanism as a concept has always been interesting to me from when I, when I studied psychology, because always like Freud said that people were evil. Skinner said that people were empty. You know, someone maybe who's been in the medical field said people have a biological, you know, sort of some kind of, uh, you know, they're off somehow biologically. And Carl Rogers was one of the only people out there that were saying like, hey, people are good. Get out of the way. Exactly. Exactly. People are good. Get out of the way. But our societal structure makes it so the top 1% or whatever, the overlords, I don't care if you call them lizard people, you know, kings, queens, Wall Street, hedge funds, these people, this and that. Uh, they're all lizard people to some people. And that's fine. That's one way to categorize them. That's like saying I'm industrial music. It's a little bit deeper than that. But the thing is, is that they know left unchecked, what you were born with, the soul that you inherited when you get on this planet is unlimited in its possibilities. And it systematically immediately starts breaking you down into a worker drone to fit this society's agenda. And this society's agenda is figured out by literally a handful of people, if they're even people. Who knows? Don't mean to sound like a kook, but I'm just saying that it's obvious. Kids are not born with this kind of judgmental racism. It's all in upbringing. Now, genetically, yes, there are. There's so many different variations of genetics where people are more inclined for empathy. People are more inclined for telepathic communication. People are more inclined for business. People are more inclined for mathematics. Yes, people are more inclined. But I, th I think literally beside bludgeoning us with whatever you're born into, in a societal frame, whether you're poor, middle class, rich, or whatever, you exchange a physicist in Pasadena with a Maasai chieftain in Africa at birth. And I guarantee you, if they were genetically disposed to be, say, a chieftain or a, a physicist at, at like some kind of space lab in Pasadena, I think given the divided sociological differences in their societies, they would still wind up being leaders. So I do think genetics poses like an inherent 
kind of succession. So I do think like, for instance, okay, the, the, the Maasai warrior would be relentless in, in, his, in his, you know, survival technique and all this. And you take that relentlessness and you put it into like, say in Pasadena, if he was predisposed to that in researching things, he would be relentless in finding the right numbers that added up to send a rocket into space. Whereas you send a physicist from there, he would do his genetic kind of analytical mind into finding out how to like grow different crops or something like that, that would survive for the tribe. I do think that those people would be special within their own field, regardless of skin color or social upbringing. I find that when people do things that are irreverent, that are unconventional, that are outside the box, the world tends to go into two different places. There are the people who are like either A, I think that's really cool, or B, I don't personally think it's cool, but I think it's cool that you tried it. And then the other half is people are like, you can't do that. You know, and, yeah. and I'm kind of curious for you, again, did you get that when you were starting and has that changed now that you have become what I guess would be considered conventionally successful, you know? Oh, well, I, I would, I would beg to differ on conventionally successful. In now, the context of an unconventional life and unconventional career. Right. But my path there was not conventional and my success is also up for debate. <laughs> so I have, I have to beg to differ with you on both points. However, no, as far as when I first started, uh, I'm one of the few, I think I can really only put my finger on maybe one other one that, that went the route that I did. And that would be like, and I don't know him. I've met him once, but uh, I would have to say in my readings about his upbringing and, and interviews and things is Nick Cave in the sense that he started out basically following the rules, doing what you're supposed to do, you know, doing everything conventional, you know, management, pop songs, this and that, pop songs that maybe you weren't uh, genuinely interested in, but just because that's what was selling and all that. And then just got disillusioned by the fact that, hey, I did everything that you told me to do and it didn't work out and I don't feel whole. And I can totally relate to that because that's exactly what happened to me. And then I started finding my own path regardless of success. And that's when any kind of success started coming is when I got out of the system. So, uh, however, success is, is really an arbitrary um, word. Well, so. but, but, but at the very, by the way, I don't know which phase Nick Cave was in where he like absolutely like killed on that Let It Be cover on I Am Sad. That, that was fantastic. I don't know which phase yeah. that you're talking about, but holy cow. Very early. That very, was that. Yeah, very, I was sitting there listening early. to that. I was like, I was yeah. like damn it. But yet, and I hear what you're saying, and so I, you know, I, I didn't mean to sort of gloss over like it's all been kind of a conventional ride. But by the same token, there are kids right now who are thinking, hey, maybe I could do something in music that other people have done. And they do have you as an example. And that, that is making it a little bit better for the people who are dealing with it now. You know? But you can't do that because here's the other equation. Like if, if this was math, you're forgetting time into the equation. So there's no math equation on how to be a pop star. Yes, you could know all the right people. You could write all the right songs that seem to hit the right framework within a certain era. 
within our society that, that society is so rigid, even like these breakthroughs we're having now of discussing like, okay, race, what is that? It, like I said, it's just different makeup. We're all people with different makeup, whether brown skin, this and that, it's a different makeup, tattoos, different makeup. But like, it's so rigid that even the slightest thing seems like this big ordeal and all that. So you have to take an, into consideration that particular era's stronghold on popular culture. So you may do all the right things and do all the right things. And then within two years, that fad may be over due to political circumstances, due to the pandemic circumstances, health circumstances, wars, this and that, that may be passe tomorrow. So you did all the right things and knew all the right people, got the right manager, did all this stuff, wrote the right songs that sound like the other songs and everything. It sounds great. And then something happens that changes the entire paradigm. And then you're left with your dick in your hands going, what the fuck just happened to me? I did everything right. So then you just have to venture out on your own. And then at that point, you have to stop hoping for the best and just doing what's true. It's just like, okay, I'm just going to do what pleases me. If this takes off, great. But if not, don't expect it. Don't do anything to even encourage it. Just stay true to like what you're doing that makes you feel whole. But you don't feel by virtue of the fact that you did that and you took that path, even if someone else has a different path in all the external ways, you don't think that that message translates? Like even someone says, like they're, they're not saying to themselves, oh, I'm going to do exactly what Al Jorgensen did and I'm going to wind up where he is. But he followed his heart. He followed his frequency. Well, yeah. So I'm going to so do that. Yeah, you know? that, that's the point because you cannot follow what Al Jorgensen did to make it big or, or whatever, successful. Because times change. Conditions change within a society that makes that what was going swimmingly for a, a, you know, a decade or so suddenly become a pariah. And where does that get you? So in other words, you have to stay true to what, what floats your boat and then tune out the external noise of this planet and tune in to the cosmic noise that comes in on a nightly and daily basis if you have your antennas up. Yeah, it's, it's like what that thing, what, what uh, Marilyn Manson said about Jim Morrison. He said, if you're trying to be Jim Morrison, you're not Jim Morrison. You know, it's like, no. if you're trying to be Al Jorgensen, you're not being Al Jorgensen. Right. That's exactly yeah. right. You know, as, and we, we're going to have to wrap up in a little bit. But, you know, as we're talking, I'm realizing how much I fall into that exact trap. It's like, I'm, what I'm, you know, we're sitting here, we're talking about deconstructing. We're talking about, you know, the frequency. And I'm sitting here being like, but because of you, it's safer, right? You know, because because you did it, now other people get to get to feel better, right? Like even I'm doing it in the context of this conversation. I'm doing, oh, you're industrial metal, or oh, you're this. Oh, people can feel you know safer because of you. And I, I gotta check myself and like remember, like don't keep trying to make it safe. Don't keep trying to make it. Right. You know, that's not necessarily the best zone. You know, don't make it comfortable. You know, right. and I gotta keep that in mind. Yes, we need to, as they say in France, break a few eggs to make an omelet. <laughs> well, I think we are going to end on that. Al, honestly, it's been fantastic talking with you. I really appreciate it. And as we said right beforehand, I'm very bummed that I'm not going to get to see you this weekend at the live show, but I'm hoping uh, we'll be able to catch it again. And also, sincerely, anytime you're doing something, it was great talking with you. I'd love to have you come back on. 
So whenever Mike, you're thanks. It would be my pleasure. I really enjoyed our talk. And uh, yes, we will be back on the road. Uh, this too shall pass, as they say. November is obviously important. Vote. And let's see what happens after that. But I do see a resumption of normalcy, which is good in a sense, but we need to expand upon that uh, as opposed to like, I experienced the 60s. 1968 was the first time I was ever tear gassed. I went down to Grant Park. I ran away from home in the suburbs of Chicago, went down with my friend and got tear gassed when I was 10, then got grounded for two weeks afterwards for coming back late at night because the train schedules were disrupted by the riots at the 68 Democratic Convention. So that was my first experience with it. I was 10. And some good things came out of that 68 year. Yes, we did have some kind of cosmetic civil rights changes, although certainly not all the way. We, I mean, basically, I felt kind of gypped. I thought we were really into something. Even at 10 years old, I felt like that was a fulcrum of societal change. And instead, we got like, you know, what would we get out of the 60s? Uh, Woodstock, bell bottoms, acid, a few civil rights, uh, uh, you know, still didn't pass equal rights amendment, this and that. A lot of cosmetic little changes. I just don't think that the planet can withstand, the planet physically can withstand another era now here in 2020 of cosmetic changes. Okay, so we give the minorities more, we give the women a little bit more, we, we do this and that, but just keep functioning as worker bees in this society. In other words, and they'll give us something new to acid and bell bottoms. I'm sure there'll be a new designer drug that gets everyone hooked and this and that. And, and it's just the same old cycle. But meanwhile, the earth is deteriorating by the industrialization and our pollution of it. And the earth is gasping and dying. So we don't have time to keep going through all these cycles. We need to end this cycle now and actually start changing society, especially education and the way that we upbring our kids. Instead of trying to conform to society, let's try and teach our kids to reform society and I think we'll be okay. But I hope I'm, I'm around long enough to see that. <laughs> All right, well, we'll talk soon. All right, Mike. Thanks, man. So there you have it. Al Jorgensen of Ministry talking about how he conceptualizes and understands human nature. And we get into a pretty interesting range of topics, including music, learning, politics, and even how we understand the presence of other beings in the universe. And what I loved about talking with Al was how open-minded he is, how willing to push the boundaries of how to think and feel about a range of situations. It's a natural, dynamic curiosity about people and the world we live in. And what naturally develops from that type of open-mindedness is an empathy for how others may feel. You always wonder what type of person can make such creative music, With Al, it isn't just about being open-minded. He's backed it up with 40 years of being productive and putting out great music. And we can learn from this to ask ourselves how we can start being curious about and questioning the world around us and empathic with ourselves and others as we work hard to achieve our purpose and help others do the same. I want to thank my wife and Hardcore Humanism co-founder, Eileen Booman, for producing this podcast, and my brothers in Odd Zero for letting us use Odd Zero music. If you like what you hear in the podcast, subscribe on your favorite app, give us a rating, and write a review. And if you'd like to take the next step and make changes in your life, check out the Hardcore Humanism Therapy and Coaching Program at HardcoreHumanism.com. So get at it, Hardcore Humans. See you next time.